Last week, we talked about the first half of Paul's life. We talked about his childhood. We talked about his early years. Uh, and then we talked about his life basically up until his conversion. Uh, just for review, we said a few things. One of the things we talked about was, hey, look, Paul's a Pharisee. Uh, originally, he was a Pharisee. He's the author of 13 books of the New Testament. He was a student of Gamaliel, a servant of Jesus. He saw himself as, because God told him he was, a evangelist to the Gentiles. We have basically, you can either think of it as two sources for the life of Paul, or we have 14 sources for the life of Paul. I, I like the 14 sources view better. Every one of the New Testament letters that Paul wrote is a source for his life, as is the book of Acts. So we can know a great deal about Paul's life from those 14 sources. Um, Paul's childhood, he grows up in 5 AD, he's born in 5 AD, grows up in modern day Turkey. He grows up though in Jerusalem and he lives there at the same time that Jesus is there. Now remember, Jesus lives in Galilee, but he comes to Jerusalem uh, on a regular basis. So he's in and out. Um, we also talked about Paul's conversion, how Stephen had this message that compelled Paul to persecute the church, right? Stephen's message, if you wanted to boil it down, was the temple wasn't meant to confine God. It was supposed to be this place of worship that goes out into all the universe. It's supposed to spread out from Jerusalem. The goal is not to bring people in here. And Paul hears that and he says, I'm going to become a persecutor of the church because it is unacceptable to teach that the temple is no longer necessary. It's unacceptable to teach that you no longer need the ceremonial laws or these things that, to bring us to God. And so we saw Paul's conversion in the last class. Now I want us to turn our attention to after his conversion. Um, now we need to briefly consider the second half of his life. Very oversimplified. One of the best places to go, and if you have a Bible, let me encourage you to open it because he gets very autobiographical here. Pardon my poor handwriting. Um, in Galatians 1.15, Paul is talking about himself. And remember, the reason Paul has to talk about himself in Galatians is because he himself is under assault. The message that he's proclaiming is under assault. And so they take, they take aim at his message by taking aim at him. They don't like what he, the Judaizers don't like what he's saying. So what do they do? They say, hey, Paul is the problem here. And so he has to defend himself. What does he say? So in Galatians 1.15, he tells us what happened right after he gets converted. He says, actually, I'll encourage, uh, who wants to read Galatians 1, 15 to 24? Is that Jim? Yeah, it's Galatians 1, 15. Uh, just a single verse? Uh, no, 15 to 24. Use your big inside voice. <laughs> or big outdoor voice. <laughs> I should stand so I can be rejected and cast over the hill. Uh, but when it <laughs> God, who separated me from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now concerning the things which I write to you indeed before God, I do not lie. 
Afterward, I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But they were hearing only. He who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God in me. Okay, so here it is. He's giving us his own telling of the moment where he's converted. Uh, He's telling us what he did right afterwards. And so what is he doing? Why is he saying this? He's saying this because he wants the people to understand that he can be trusted as somebody that God has given the gospel to. So he tells us basically that immediately after his conversion on the Damascus Road, he goes into Arabia. So he, he, Luke doesn't talk about the next 14 years of his life, and even Paul doesn't actually include what happens over the next 14 years of his life. Paul just speaks of it in, in passing. What we do know is that he spends this time in Syria, Arabia, Judea, Syria, Cilicia during this time. The big thing he's making, the big argument he's making in Galatians is the gospel that he preached was not what he received from man. So he's really, he's really insistent that you know that when you read the book of Romans, I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing big time. He's saying, when you read the book of Romans, when you read the book of Philippians, when you read the book of Galatians, you're reading the gospel of somebody who received the gospel from God and wasn't a secondary individual further down the, to- the apostolic totem pole. He's saying, I'm an apostle. I'm as much an apostle as Peter. I'm as much an apostle as James. I'm just as much an apostle as any of these other men. Um, so then we know of the next phase of his life after these 14 years between when he is converted and when his missionary journey, his first missionary journey begins. This happens in about 47 AD. It's the first missionary journey. I'm just going to put a big one there. First missionary journeys in 47 AD. Um, he, it takes him through Asia Minor. This is probably, and this is a very relative f- phrase, in terms of fruitfulness, this is a very fruitful missionary journey um, because he, he does accomplish two more missionary journeys. But here, what's he doing? He's spreading the gospel and he's planting churches. He starts churches in Galatia. Macedonia, I'm just going to shorten things up, Uh, Achaia and Asia. He's planting churches Um, um, over the course of basically 10 years. Paul goes from city to city. First, he's visiting who? Where does he go to when he goes to every city? He goes to the synagogues first. That's just what's that? He, we do not have a time period for that, I don't think. Uh, unless somebody knows better than me, and they could. Um, but I think that he, he, he basically gives, a, relates an experience of going to heaven, of seeing something extraordinary, but I don't believe he says when that happened. But obviously it's got to be later because isn't it... Is it 2 Corinthians? Oh, I'm all scrambled. I shouldn't guess things in front of you guys. Um... If you can give me the passage, then I'll, I might have a thought. Because it might be, depending on which book it is, it may be earlier or later. Um, so what's his pattern, though? His pattern is, I'm going to go to the synagogues first. I'm going to give the Jews their opportunity. In every city, they get a chance. And he goes to the synagogues, and inevitably, he's rejected by most, if not 
if not all. And then he goes to the Gentiles and he preaches the gospel there. He follows that pattern very consistently, even at the end of his life. He gets sent to Rome. What does he do when he goes to Rome? He calls the Jewish leaders in Rome to come and see him while he's under house arrest. He, he's preaching them the gospel. He's doing, he's doing his level best to make sure that he gives the Jews an opportunity first. Um, Paul Barnett says it like this. He preaches this Jesus who appeared to him all over the world as he knew it. And in doing so, he lit a powder keg that really changed the world as we know it today. And then he says this. Paul's achievements during this glorious decade were so remarkable as to change the course of history. How different world history would be had Paul remained in Syria, Cilicia. Right? If he had just stayed put and said, hey, I'm just going to serve this church. I'm just going to be a, a, just do what I do. There's no need for me to go out into the, into the world. Just interesting alternate histories could be written about what the world would look like if he had not done that. Um, um, how different? Yeah, um, I just think that's interesting to think about. Um, Planted churches all up and down the coast of the Mediterranean. He wrote letters to the churches, many of which we still have today. Honestly, the world is a very, very different place because the Apostle Paul ministered. Um, Sorry, iPad glitch. Um, So his written works. Let's talk about some of his written works. He wrote the book of uh, Galatians. That's funny. I had Galatians at the top already. Um, he wrote both letters to the Thessalonians from Corinth. He wrote 1 Corinthians, Philemon, Colossians, and Ephesians. Two years later, he writes 2 Corinthians. By the way, if you want a list of the order that he probably wrote his, his letters in, let me know. I can tell them to you later. But um, probably Galatians is the earliest. Um, depends. Sometimes you'll see different scholars argue for different dates. Uh, but generally, it's agreed that he wrote Galatians first or very early. Then he goes into prison. And while he's in prison, he's, uh, his church planting comes to an end. He's in prison for seven years. And during that seven years, he's not in prison for like a straight amount of time. It's like he's in, he's out, he's in, he's out. Uh, he's got a real criminal record, probably one of those teardrop tattoo things. Um, you know, he's a, he's a prison dude. Um, while he's in prison, he writes the pastoral epistles. He writes First and Second Timothy. We're going through that on Sundays. He's in prison when he writes First First Timothy, um, Titus, and Philippians. All of these books are written while he's in prison. We call them the prison epistles. Um, we don't know when he wrote them necessarily. Very hotly debated issues. Uh, what we do know is how the timeline breaks down. So he's in Jerusalem in sixty A.D. He enters the city and he is set upon by the Jewish authorities. Um, he exercises his right as a Roman citizen. They're, they're going to beat him. They're going to do all sorts of things to him that they, as somebody who doesn't get due process, gets treated. Uh, but he says, hey, look, I'm a Roman citizen. I'm going to exercise my rights as a citizen. Take me to Caesar. And so he gets taken to Rome in 60 AD. Looks like I wrote go. It's 60. <laughs> 60 AD, he gets taken to Rome Along the way, he's shipwrecked. It's very exciting. Children love when you, when you talk to them about the shipwreck. Um, Acts 28 ends with him under house arrest in Rome. And that's where the narrative of Acts ends. And I think as readers, it's tempting for us to say, well, that's where Paul's story ends. He, it, is, it just ends with him under house arrest. 
But Paul lived another seven years. So he lived seven years beyond the ending of Acts. Um, from history, we know that Paul died in Rome, martyred by Nero in 67 AD. So, you know, you've got a seven-year window while he's in Rome. Uh, I want to focus on two things in the rest of our, our time together. I want to talk about the most serious controversy that Paul dealt with. And then I want to focus on how he responds to those controversies. So the controversy, the big controversy is circumcision. I don't think that comes as a surprise. We already saw that in the book of Acts that this was such a big deal. And it's a big issue still for Paul. It is the most serious threat to the gospel that Paul would deal with in all of his years of ministry. Um, This issue of circumcision, it never leaves him alone, all his ministry. So just after his first missionary journey, this controversy arises. We see it in Acts 15. We're not going to read it together because we just saw it two weeks ago, I think, when we looked at Acts chapter 15. But the decision gets made. We are not going to burden other Christ- burden Christians with the requirements of the Jewish law. They don't have to take up circumcision. They don't have to become Jews in order to become Christians. And so you still have these Jews who can't let go of Judaism, right? You have Jews who believe that something needs to be added to the work of Jesus in order for us to be saved. And that thing they want to add is circumcision. But I want you to also know this. Circumcision is just the beginning of what they expect. See, this is, circumcision is like the foot in the door when it comes to works, when it comes to this, this ceremonial observance that they want, because it's not the only thing that they want. They want the whole kit and caboodle. Um, they are envisioning a Christianity that is basically Judaism with its full adherence to the Mosaic law, plus now they say, look, now we have a better sacrifice in Jesus. That's the difference. And maybe that sounds almost right. Maybe that sounds pretty good to you. And if so, then you understand why it might be so difficult for Paul to to sort of answer these people. Um, In verses 28 and 29 of Acts 15, the decision of the council is arrived at. Gentiles don't have to be circumcised. Nobody gets extra burdens put on them. You believe in Jesus, you are saved. Put your faith in Jesus, you you are saved. Um, now, there's more in the instruction that they give, but it's not about salvation. It's about how they should behave and how they should treat themselves, treat other people, other believers. But here's what happens. So Paul, equipped with this decision, equipped with the scriptures, ex- equipped with the arguments that have been making, Paul says, all right, I'm going to go. And he goes and he spreads the gospel and counter missionaries are sent to follow him. So just as Paul goes to a church he leaves the church and then someone shows up and they say, oh, this is a great church you have here. What's that? You guys aren't circumcised. Mm-hmm. Oh, Paul was here before. Okay, well, there's some more that you need to know. And then they'll say, well, Paul's an apostle. He knows what he's talking about. And essentially these people say, well, I, I, actually, he's kind of like a junior apostle. We come from James, which they didn't. We'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, they say, we come from James. He's, he's Jesus' brother. He's the most significant of all the, of all of the uh, apostles. You really should be listening to what we have to say. And oftentimes they would. Because you could see the disappointment of Paul when he says how surprised he is. So um, uh, Paul is preaching a circumcision-free gospel. And that, of course, is scandalizing many people who are used to circumcision. And 
Galatians 2 describes these counter-missionaries sent from Jerusalem. And in that passage, this is where we get the whole James story. Like, I'm, I probably sound like I was really, uh, you know, inserting some uh, creative elements to that. I don't think I was. The, the, specifically, in Galatians 2, it says that these brothers were from James. Um, I, they came directly to Pauline churches. Um, almost certainly they claim to be from James. That's how they get their pedigree. That's how they get your ear. That's how they get you to listen to them. And um, it's unlikely they came from James, though, because if you read James 15, who is one of the speakers who gets up and defends the decision to have a circumcision-free Christianity? It's James, right? James is the one who gets up and gives the speech. And so this would be very strange for James to do that in Acts 15 and then sort of be like a turncoat and suddenly start sending these counter-missionaries out. Um, so here's what they do. They use James's name. They use maybe their acquaintance with him. And they use it to give themselves authority. So here's what Paul Barnett says. And again, I held the book up last week. I don't have it out here today. Paul Barnett's book on the life of Paul, I think, is the best that I know of. So I highly recommend it. But he says, these counter missionaries from the extreme wing of the Jewish mission in Jerusalem were so opposed to Paul's f- law-free message to Gentiles that they were prepared to travel as far as he did to modify or even overturn his teachings. So just think about how earnest they are. They mean it. This is not like, oh, wouldn't it be great to troll Paul? No, that's not what they're doing. They're not trolling Paul. They really sincerely, they sincerely have a problem with the message that he's proposing, that he's, that he's preaching. And in Galatians 2.11, you see how effective they are at applying this pressure. This is what they do. They go there. They put pressure on people and they make them feel guilty. You, you know it's as easy as pie to, to, to follow the ceremonial law. It's as easy as pie to not, to not eat these certain foods. It's so, it's so easy. Why don't you just do it? And you know God gave the, the law to us. You know that Moses was a gift. Why would you say bad things about Moses? Do you have a problem with Moses? And you can just imagine the kind of persuasive weight that that would have. And then you really see what happens because in Galatians 2, 11 to 14, Paul directly relates to us how bad it gets. He says, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Remember, Cephas is Peter. I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Why did he stand condemned? What did Peter do? He says, before certain people came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself Fearing the circumcision party. Think about how powerful these people are. How much, ex- how much force they exert. That, that even someone like Peter who knows the truth. He was there for the council. He, he understands the, what, what's good and what's right. He knows what the gospel is. Even he is shrinking back from the Gentiles. And just kind of slips over with the Jewish believers instead. And sits with them. And Paul, you know, you can just imagine Paul out of the corner of his eye. Seeing what's going on. And be like. I ain't having it. And he has to say something. And so he says, the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. Like there's, there's social pressure here. Like it's powerful. Social pressure is so forceful. Everybody else goes along with him. It says even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So you can see what's happening here. This is the sort of thing that if you don't address it right away, it sticks forever. And it, and it just, and it's hard to dislodge it, right? It says, but when I saw their conduct wasn't in step with the gospel, truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? 
This is the passage where if you look at it in the Greek, it says, how can you Judaize? How can you Judaize? He, he, he makes up the term here. Like, I don't think it's a Greek word that, you know, it's the word for force someone to live like a Jew. And that's what he does. He confronts him. Now, the point of this passage is, is A, to point out how dangerous the Judaizers are. But it's also to point out that Paul is a fellow apostle and he's allowed to confront an apostle. And that's what he does. He pulls out the big guns and he addresses this intimidating lobby of individuals. Um, we know some things about the Judaizers. We know they're intimidating. We know their center of power is in Jerusalem. That's where they originate from. It seems that that's sort of their home base. They go back there and they return. Um, they torment Paul and make his mission very difficult in other churches. Galatia, Antioch, Corinth, Philippi, and Antioch, in all of these churches, he has to reckon with the Judaizers. So Paul Barnett says it this way. He says, this was the most serious crisis in the history of early Christianity to date, since it potentially spelled the end of Paul's mission to the Gentiles on a circumcision-free basis. So just imagine if, if this goes wrong, the rest of Christianity goes wrong. <laughs> you know, this is the seed. This is the seed that it all grows out of. And if it is bad, then the rest of the tree ends up being bad and corrupted. And so just imagine how weighty it is, just how, how important it is to get this right. So how does he respond? So he responds to the Judaizers by affirming his own authority. Uh, most of the agenda of, for, of Galatians and 1 Corinthians is just him constantly working to undo the damage of these people and to persuade them and remind them of who he is and that Jesus chose him as an apostle. Um, he responds by really truly being shocked whenever anybody buys into the Judaizers. You know, it's almost like he, he was here. He, he told you what was right. He told you what, was, what the gospel was. He taught these things to you. And then he says, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? They're breaking his heart. They're, they are breaking his heart that they are so easily led astray. Um, he says that he's amazed in Galatians 1.6. Um, in the same verse, Paul regards those following the Judaizers as deserting Jesus. He says, if you listen to them, you're not just abandoning Paul. This is not about Paul. You're deserting Jesus, he says, if you do that. Um, so this is not a matter of theological hair spreading. This is not the nerds getting together and, and having like a nerd battles, you know, which we do that sometimes. You know, theological nerds love to, to argue about stuff. This is not that. This is, this is about life or death. This is about justification or condemnation. This is about whether you get to have peace with God or whether you get to try to make your own peace and it's fake. Like it's that, it's that drastic. Um, this is not angels dancing on the head of a pen. Uh, he says in Galatians 3.11, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law for the righteous shall live by faith. He points the Old Testament. He draws the principle from Habakkuk and he says, look, I'm not making this up. I'm, it's taught in Habakkuk. This is, this, is in, this is embedded in the Old Testament text. Just try to read the Old Testament without justification by faith alone. And you will quickly come away wondering how all of this makes any sense. Um, justification is the key that unlocks the Old Testament. It's Christ is the one that makes the whole Old Testament make sense. And they almost want to leave it locked. They want to leave it locked and live in the shadows. And so he responds. 
asserts his authority. He shows them that the gospel is part of the Old, Old Testament uh, through and through. Now, I want to uh, mention something else here. Um, the men from Jeru- the Jerusalem church were antagonists for like all of Paul's ministry. They, they are just there all the time. It's like background noise, but it's the kind of background noise that can become a huge distraction. And it would be really easy for Paul to become bitter at the Jerusalem church. It would be really easy for Paul, you know, one year in and the, these counter missionaries are coming and, you know, it would drive him crazy. But then two years in, you know, you, you could imagine Paul going, why are they addressing these people? And then after five years, you know, you could imagine Paul saying, is that going to stop at some point? Uh, we did do that meeting in Acts 15, right? <laughs> and then after 10 years, you could imagine him just being weary of going back and cleaning up after these people and wondering when, when this mess is going to stop. And then 15 years in, and then you could just imagine if it was me, I could at least imagine the bitterness how the bitterness would, t- would set in. And eventually you would start to think so badly of the leaders in Jerusalem. What kind of church are you running there? You get to the end of Romans 15. And in Romans 15, he talks about how he really wanted to go to Spain. He says, I have this ambition to go to Spain. But instead, Paul does something that you would not expect from a person who's embittered. Because he's not embittered. He says, I'm going to take up a collection for the believers in Jerusalem. He says, I want to take up a collection for the believers in Jerusalem. We know how they've been suffering. He has an open heart towards his brothers. And so he takes up this collection and he does it himself. Paul could have sent somebody else. He could have sent somebody else and then he could have indulged his desire to go to Spain. This is what he wanted. He wanted to go to Spain, spread the gospel on the west end of the empire And no one would have argued with him, right? No one's going to be like, going to Spain as a missionary, that's not very dedicated to Jesus. Like, nobody's going to look at him and say that. This is a totally righteous thing he wants. And yet, for him, he's he's like, I know what I could do. I could go to Spain. But I think I know what I should do. I need to go to these brothers in Jerusalem, and they need to see my love. They need to see how much I care about them. And so that's what he does. And so he goes, he goes to Jerusalem, and um, Paul Barnett talks about this. He says, possibly Paul thought that this would strengthen the bonds between the Gentile churches and the Jewish mother church in Jerusalem. Um, Paul, amazingly, Paul loved this flawed church that had its own share of problems. He loved them anyway. He loved them even though there were people coming from that place that were really making his life difficult. Um, And in Romans 15, he talks about why. He says, this gift is a debt that the Gentiles owe to the saints in Jerusalem for the spiritual blessings that flow out of them to the Gentiles. Um, Just amazing that he's not embittered. He's not. He's, He's a mature person. He's a model of what it is to love God's people. Um. Barnett concludes this section on this subject by putting the situation really plainly. He says, we may say with confidence that the circumcision mission of Jerusalem-based Jewish believers was the greatest challenge he faced during that decade. And so I just want us to reflect upon this just for a minute. God uses this hard, heavy, long-standing challenge to the faith, and he uses it in Paul's life to produce some of the most important writings in the entire history of the church. 
imagine a Bible without Galatians. Like, imagine a Bible without Romans. Like, makes me want to pass out. Like, that's because I'm a nerd, but not just a nerd. Like, I'm, a, I'm just a Christian, right? Christians should, should just be floored by the thought. Uh, imagine a Bible without Philippians. If you don't have the Judaizers, you don't have those books. Those are the reasons he writes these books, right? Um, that's, that's what we have, would have lost if the, if the Judaizers hadn't assaulted the church, if they hadn't challenged the authority of Paul, if they hadn't launched their countermission against this guy, right? Now, think about it this way. Life would have been easier for Paul if you were giving Paul a choice even in the moment. Hey, would you like the Judaizers to come behind you and mess up all your work? Paul's going to say no. You can even imagine how much Paul must have prayed for them to stop. You can imagine the unanswered prayers that those counter-missionaries represented. And, and God uses this challenge to give us this gift that we would have needed. Life would have been easier for Paul. His ministry would have been smooth. And in the long term, the whole church would have been poorer for it. So, so in these letters, what is Paul doing? He's teaching a grace-based, law-free, Christ-centered, spirit-empowered theology and lifestyle. And so... It's in this weird sense that we need to thank God for the Judaizers. We really, we really need to thank him for the Judaizers. Because it goes to show that God has used error throughout church history to refine and clarify the beliefs of God's people. You know that the, the hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. He's got that line where he says, behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. And you, yes, Eric. Um, was letter writing from prison commonplace, or was it special for Paul? Like, was it God ordained? Because I also think about uh, John on the island of Patmos, <clears throat> mm-hmm. also letter writing. So when he's on Patmos, it's probably not a prison. It's he's just in a cave. Oh, um, he's just in exile, but yeah. Paul in prison. Uh, I couldn't answer that question. Maybe somebody who's more of an expert in the ancient Roman prison systems could tell you. Um, And I don't mean that as a joke. Somebody probably could tell you that. But I do know this. All the things you need to write a letter, especially something as long as one of Paul's letters, is going to be expensive. So it's probably written on maybe vellum. And that's expensive. You know, it's like a huge piece of leather. Think how expensive leather is today. It's not any different then. And then you've got to have material to write it with. So yeah, it takes a lot of work. Him, you know, he'd be chained to a Roman soldier. Yeah, and sometimes the, the prisons in Rome are funny, though, because, um, like, you have to feed yourself. You have to, like, you have to have people bring you all the stuff that you actually need. Um, and we know that they're letting him have some liberty, right? Because he's able to, have, you know, they're bringing him stuff that he needs. He's able to have visitors. They're pretty free about that. And so it's, it's hard to know exactly what his prison conditions are like. Um, somebody who's an expert in ancient Rome could tell you what the, the prisons were like, though. So He's a Roman citizen, so he's all, already being treated differently. He's, he, would, would you say he might be a little bit pampered? Could we say he's a little pampered because he's a Roman citizen? Yeah. Um, they're, they, you know, they're not even going to strike him. So it's going to be like prison, but like the nice prison with the TV, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, and the pen and paper, you know, maybe he's got Facebook there. Yeah. Which one was Timothy's circumcision? What's that? The circumcision of Timothy. Ah, uh, the circumcision of Timothy. So, um, 
Well, let, let me think. Let me think about that for a moment. I almost want to. I would almost want to go to the text and talk through it. So I don't know if I'm prepared to do that right now with three minutes left. Um, Timothy doesn't get circumcised for any reason except to open up the doors of evangelism. So he's not circumcised because it's necessary, but because they're not going to get a hearing without it. If I could, if that's that's my five second version of answering it. It shows what Paul, the limits Paul's willing to go to. Uh, you know, it reminds me of uh, in Dumb and Dumber where he says, they could have killed me. And he says, that's a risk we were willing to take. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Dumb and Dumber. Um, <laughs> Paul's like, it's a risk we were willing to take, getting you circumcised. Because it's not done out of deference to the law. It's done because he's not going to get a hearing. He's not going to get a hearing without it. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> it's very hard to go from my reference to Dumb and Dumber to let's give it a nice, I'll put a bow on this. But I'm going to try to put a bow on it anyway and never do Dumb and Dumber quotes again. Uh, uh, <laughs> it's hard to think so, see, you, watch. You, you, you stand down here. <laughs> You stand down here and it's like you can say anything, but you get up there, it's very serious. So, <laughs> but uh, the, the point I guess I'm making is that we should thank God for the ministry of the, the Judaizers in this strange way. We don't thank, it, thank him for the ministry in and of themselves, but, but because of what he did. Because here's what happens. God brings this challenge into Paul's life. He brings this beautiful, amazing fruit out of his ministry, and the whole church is stronger for it. And you think about it, and that's what God has been doing through his people through all of the existence of the church. Joseph, what does he say? You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Um, He does the same thing in the life of Job. All of the suffering comes into his life, and God says, I have my purposes. I know what I'm doing. He does the same thing in the life of Jesus, right? The most evil thing anybody ever did. And, it's, and the scripture tells us that God predestined it to take place exactly as it took place. And you could say that too in the life of Paul. Um, we are all blessed because of their sufferings. And then I would just add a little postscript and say, should we expect any less for ourselves in our own lives? Um, because in the end, Paul's ministry and his writings should cause us to appreciate the gospel of God's free grace. This is what Paul's life and message was all about. It's what Paul was dedicated to. It's what Paul suffered for. So as we're getting ready to do an overview of Paul's letters, we're going to go to Romans next week. Um, let's be prepared to, to just celebrate the truth that it is not obedience to the law that makes us righteous in God's sight. Um, Paul would tell all of us, I think, that if there's any message that you want to draw from his life, if there's any message to draw from his life, it's that the righteous shall live by faith, not by works of the law. So that's a good point, I think, for us to end on. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for the life of your, of your man, Paul. We thank you that you raised him up. We thank you that you converted him. We thank you that you gave him life and salvation, that you changed him from who he was to who he became. We thank you that you brought difficulties into his life, O oh God, which you used to bring fruit to our lives. We thank you that you brought 
so much more good out of his suffering than he would have probably even known at the time. We thank you for the gospel. We ask these things this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm